Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. I'm low energy today. How can you be low energy, though? This is our hour later, day later recording time. We've got a whole extra day to gather up all that energy. Nothing says energy like Wednesday. Because the entire family got a stomach bug this weekend. Oh, no. Coming out of that. Oh, man. Stomach stuff really takes it out of you. It's like a special kind of empty feeling. (laughs) With a two-year-old, too, I feel like. Or near two-year-old. It is particularly exhausting. That's rough. It's not. Because they don't know what's going to happen. They can't warn you what's about to happen. The whole situation gets very precarious. They're so upset about it, too. They're like, what happened? What happens, happens. And then they just look at you betrayed, being like, how could you let this happen? (laughs) I'm sorry, buddy. I got no control over this. Come give me a hug, but first let's give you a bath. <laughs> My little guy has only had one bad stomach thing, which was actually a weird precursor to COVID, it turned out, but we didn't know that at the time. And like in the middle of the night, I picked him up. He's a little crying. I picked him up his grip. I was like, what's happening? And then he just exploded in like exorcist levels of volume of vomit everywhere. And I was like, what the hell was that? I don't even know where that came from. It's crazy. It was spooky. It was very genuinely scary. Like like at some point it begins to violate like the conservation of mass. Like it's just like more came out than this child weighs. Like how how is there still a person under in this child? Yeah. It should be deflated like a balloon. The limp little baby balloon. It's crazy. Oh boy, the, the limp little baby balloon edition. That's like the the boy. What was it that that boy who like was supposedly lost in a balloon, and then it turned out that his family had actually staged the whole thing. Do you remember that? This was in like 2010. Big news wow. in 2010. That would be better for the seven part investigative podcast. Well, and and the thing is, that little boy grew up to become Congressman George Santos. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, everyone, and welcome to Rational Security. I am one of your co-hosts, Scott R. Anderson, and I am, as always, or as most of the time anyway, here with my two other co-hosts, Quinta Jurassic. Sorry, I was looking up information about the balloon boy. Hello. <laughs> Caught you unawares. Caught you unawares with my switching of the order here. And my other co-host, Alan Rosenstein. <laughs> Hello. We may or may not have been talking about a blue boy previously. It may or may not be in the B-roll, but don't worry oh, about it. Better it better be in the, we'll, we'll better be in the B-roll. We'll get to it. <laughs> we'll see. Well, we are coming to you, the listener, now from our new time slot, our new recording slot here on Wednesdays, ready for the new release in our new release date on Thursdays, as opposed to Wednesdays, breaking a long-held rational security tradition, truly redefining ourselves as the new rational security not whatever those other people used to be we are the one true rational security with our new time slot taking all the tradition especially that of ben Wittes, and burning it to the ground where who is that again i don't remember who that is 
I don't even remember who that is. Although I think their picture may still be up on the Twitter account, but it's fine. We got to take a creepy picture with the globe or the three of us yes. looking through a lawfare sign into a microphone. Some of those pictures they had for a while. That's okay. We'll get there. We'll get there eventually. Um, regardless, I am excited to have both of you here with me along with the listeners for what we are calling the Thelma or Louise edition. Because whichever one you choose, we are going hand in hand towards a deep, dark cliff together uh, with some of these news stories over this past week. Uh, it's a pretty dark one. I'm not going to lie. In some unexpected and interesting ways. Topic one for this week, blocked and muted. Earlier this week, the Washington Post published a draft report by the January 6th committee detailing how the far right used social media to organize and mobilize in the lead up to the insurrection. The very same analysis that was reportedly kept out of the committee's final report over the objections of staffers. How substantial are these revelations and how will they impact the committee's legacy? Topic two, sign of the times. The Chinese government is reporting that its population has declined for the first time in 60 years, decades ahead of projections. Combined with the fallout from the regime's reversal on its zero COVID policies and a lagging economy, some are taking this as a sign of difficult times to come for the People's Republic. How should we read these reports and what do they mean for the China-U.S. relationship, not to mention China's relationship with the rest of the international community? And topic three, raising the roof. I am sure I am one of thousands of people who will make that exact same punter joke over the weeks to come, but that's okay. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen has warned that the federal government is beginning extraordinary measures to avoid a debt default as the United States moves closer to the debt ceiling without either party in Congress having any apparent plan for how they will go about raising it. How serious a threat is this? What options might be available for addressing it? For our first topic, Alan, let me hand it over to you to get us started. So one of the more interesting parts of the January 6th committee's work is what did not end up in the report. And we know that because of some really interesting process stories that have been coming out and are coming out. And the Washington Post story is another example of that, about how hard, in particular, Liz Cheney fought to keep the report really tightly scoped around Donald Trump. And so because of that, a lot of stuff that the committee in its several years of investigative work, a lot of the stuff that they found out did not make it into the report. For example, a lot of the information about the security lapses around the Capitol. But an additional piece, and what we're focusing on now, is the question of what social media companies did, or in particular did not do in the run-up to January 6th in terms of uh, in terms of removing extremist content and alt-right content. Uh, and so there's this 122-page internal memo that appears to have been leaked to the Washington Post, and they've published it so you can you read it if you'd like, where the committee staff uncover sort of lots of evidence about what, at least in their view, and we should talk about whether this is accurate, but in their view is failures on the part of big social media companies to remove content that the companies themselves believed was dangerous until after January 6th. And, and uh, you know, the the reasons for this are complicated, but it does seem to ultimately boil down to concern among these platforms that were they to remove this information, uh, you know, Trump content and pro-Trump content, um, that they would get a real right-wing backlash. So, Quinta, let me start with you because you are maybe sort of our chief chief social media correspondent. What, if anything in particular, stood out to you from this reporting as you know new or notable in terms of what these companies did or did not do in the run-up to January 6th? So I should start by saying that I have not had a chance to read through this 122-page draft report carefully. And so keep keep that in mind, take everything with a, a grain of salt. So I'll base what I'm saying mostly on the Washington Post reporting and on an essay written by 
I think some, possibly all of the staffers who worked on this document uh, in just security and tech policy press, which we can link in the show notes. I think my my overall takeaway is that there there does not seem to be you know a big smoking gun here. Um, I think that there's often a temptation to imagine that there's going to be something that you know totally changes our understanding of what happened on January 6th. I will say, actually, I think the, the January 6th committee kind of did provide that when it comes to Trump's personal involvement in the insurrection. There's nothing here that really jumped out at me as like, whoa, I had no idea. That's totally stunning. I think it's more... You know, a, a lot of details that add up to a, a pretty damning picture that is broadly consistent with, although it differs in some ways from kind of the picture that I think a lot of folks who were keeping an eye on tech companies' activities during this period thought, which is essentially that the tech companies did not do enough to prevent violence, that they didn't take the threat of violence seriously on on high levels, which is not to say that, you know, there were not employees within those companies working hard to try to mitigate the potential harm. Um, indeed, one of the the sources um, is a, a whistleblower who I think was a relatively senior person on Twitter's policy team, uh, Annika Collier-Navaroli, whose uh, footage of her deposition was played but anonymized during the hearings, and she's since come forward by name. I think the, the main thing that I noted was, and this is flagged in the, the Just Security and Tech Policy Press piece, is that what the staffers found was not particularly a financial motive on the part of these platforms that was keeping them from tamping down dangerous speech. You know, it wasn't that they wanted to make sure that more people would stay on the platform, including people on the far right, because they were worried about, um, you know, the, the money and keeping those those users on, but that it was really a political concerns, that it was a desire essentially not to piss off Trump, not to piss off the Republican Party. I don't know if that's hugely surprising. I think that the idea that, you know, these platforms juice engagement by all means to keep you online is certainly true, but it can be overstated, especially because advertising takes a hit on there's uh, gross content on your platform. We've seen this under Elon Musk's Twitter, um, which reportedly the, the revenue is down, I think, by 40% since last year, in large part because a lot of advertisers have have fled. Um, but it is really striking just to see these staffers write out, you know, that the platforms did not take action as much as they should have because they were worried about political backlash. That's a really striking thing to see written out in in black and white. I will also say I think it's it's notable that the staffers again in that same just security tech policy press piece are pretty careful about you know saying this is not something that was solely caused by social media platforms this is not something that can be fixed by you know tweaking the algorithm or something like that there was not an obvious solution here this is one important part of a much much bigger puzzle and that is not a particularly you know, sexy or brash conclusion. I do wonder whether that may be part of why it was uh, excised ultimately from the report. But I do think it's an important one. And I'm looking forward to reading through the the memo to get a better sense of things. I, I have some other thoughts, including what it means that this information is coming out now, but I've been talking for a while. So I'll shut up and give Scott a chance to weigh in. Yeah, I, I think I agree wholeheartedly with your sort of take on this, which is that this is interesting, not revelatory, does shed a little interesting light. You know, I actually don't think it actually puts in a very useful perspective the motivation of people keeping 
this out of the main report? Because you actually did see slivers of it come through, particularly during the hearings. I'm guessing it was in the report, I, although I would have to go back and double check exactly how much made it in because I actually don't recall. Not a, not a huge amount. It's there in, in bits and pieces, but the the big section of it is is not there. Yeah, exactly. It was like the kind of key points were taken and kind of sprinkled around amidst other things. And so, you know, some of the key information did make it in there. It sounds like part of the objections, at least from the Washington Post reporting over this, was from Representative Cheney, um, which would have been reported previously about concerns about, you know, drifting too far from focus the focus on President Trump, maybe from a desire not to criticize, you know, broader elements of the Republican kind of party and apparatus. But also the Washington Post notes that some objections may have come or reportedly did come from Zoe Lofgren, a Democrat on the committee who represents a number of tech companies in her district and didn't want to make, I guess, criticism the maker focus. Although I if I recall correctly, I believe she denies that in the Washington Post piece or frames it differently. Um, but regardless, it's it's not a very neat story about why these things were you know, left out to some degree, sprinkled in, split up, but it certainly deprives them of a lot of force. You know, when you really make the each of the chapters of the committee's report is a narrative arc. It is giving a lot of focus to elements of this plan. And frankly, I think this would have fit pretty neatly within them, either as an additional chapter or in the chapter in the kind of lead up to January 6th. So it really would not have been that hard, I don't think, to include this if the committee had been inclined to do so. It would have kind of gone with the broader narrative and structure and form. It needed some polishing. I'm sure that's true of all the sections in draft form. This never really got passed. So it is kind of an odd choice. I will say it's good, I think, that this came forward from the Washington Post, and I'm glad that the staffers appear to have leaked it, because in its full form, as opposed to kind of mutterings from staffers who may or may not represent it like a broader body, this report in its current form certainly at least reflected the view of the team that was authoring this section at some point. And there's a lot of useful information in here that's good to have part of the public record. In my mind, that would have been a good case to release it as a you know, addendum or as uh, one of these kind of corollary reports where you thought might be included, which we've seen included in things like the 9-11 committee report, stuff like that. But the committee chose not to do that. I, I'm still a little bit perplexed why, except for maybe just really their narrative drive, wanting to really focus deliberately on Trump himself and his role. Let me play devil's advocate a little bit on what I think is kind of an emerging consensus about this story. And then you two can tell me why I'm wrong in being overly grumpy. So first, I completely understand why this was not included in the main report. And I know that Liz Cheney has gotten a lot of flack from this. And I don't know if she argued nicely to the, her committee members or she bullied them, which would be bad. But either way, I think she made obviously the right call, which is that reports, you know, a congressional committee is not there. These are not journalists, right? This is not a court of law, right? This is a narrative exercise or it's a political exercise in narrative making that we hope to be true. And it seems like the report was true. So they 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 checked that box. And I think the focus on Trump was really important. And for that reason, I think it makes total sense that this was not included. And, and it does seem that, that some of the complaints you know, about this part not being included or the parts about the security lapses not being included are, well, we did all this work, it should be included. And I'm just not sure that's true, right? Like sometimes you do a bunch of research for a project and it does not get included because it does not serve the broader narrative goal of the project. So it's sort of that's one argument in defense of the kind of tight scope of of the of the thing. Um I, if, if viewers I'm I'm getting quinta I'm getting quinta faced. So get 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 ready for a, for a rejoinder. But let me let me just dig myself even deeper, Quinta. So then then as to the report itself, I I do again the 
tech companies are important and I, you know, I, I'm not arguing that, that they do content moderation perfectly or well, or, you know, whatever, but I'm also guess, I think a little skeptical about calls now that they should have done all that much more, frankly, before January 6th for, for a couple of reasons. First, the idea that they did not act because they were worried about political backlash does not strike me, frankly, I think as troubling as it does a lot of other people, because companies are constantly acting out of concern for political backlash, right? That is what it means to take one's stakeholders into account, right? It's just that we don't like this part of the political spectrum, so we think it's inappropriate to take that into account. But this is actually how companies constantly make content moderation decisions. They're constantly thinking about political backlash from the left or the right. Now, we hope that the political backlash is not coercive, right? We hope it's not in the sense that the government is going to punish them in some unconstitutional or anti-constitutional way. But I think just taking into account politics is not necessarily such a bad thing. And then finally, I just don't know how to avoid hindsight bias. Like, I just don't know how you avoid the Monday morning quarterbacking that comes because we know how January 6th ended up. And and here, I think there's a really interesting quote from uh, Brian Fishman. Um, it's in the Washington Post article. And he was Facebook's, the title apparently is Head of Dangerous Organizations, which is like an interesting title. It's like a pretty I cool title. Say, I, I love that that was Brian's <laughs> title because it makes yeah. it sound like he was running the dangerous organizations rather exactly. than trying to counter them, which was what he was actually doing. Exactly, exactly, exactly. And so he says in the in the, in the article, I thought Facebook should be more aggressive in taking down Stop the Steal stuff before January 6th. Okay, fine. The article then goes on to to note that he said, however, that broader action would have resulted in taking down, quote, much of the conservative movement on the platform, far beyond just groups that said Stop the Steal, um, including mainstream conservative commentators. Um, and it's f- finally, it says he, Fishman, said he did not believe such action, quote, would have prevented violence on January 6th. So, I continue to, again, not be sure what people want these companies to do, right? And remember, every time we ask companies to do more aggressive content moderation, you're going to end up right down the line with more Hunter Biden laptop stuff, which again, whatever you think about, like whether Hunter Biden is a threat to American democracy, which obviously isn't, that's not good, however, still for trust in social media. So uh, there's a real catch-22 here, and I, I'm not convinced that the reporting is being nearly sensitive enough to that, or or that the that the committee report. Uh, the, the memo was being sensitive enough to that. Okay, eviscerate me, Quinta. Okay, so look, I, I have some complicated thoughts about this. First off, I think that you are certainly right that this, look, this is a congressional committee. It produced a political document. That is what congressional committees are supposed to do. That said, I think that it is important that we distinguish between legitimate choices about what to include and what to leave on the cutting room floor, which I can totally understand if you're a staffer, you worked on this for a really long time, it is rough to see that happen, and outright falsehoods and misrepresentations which is what happened on the report section about security and intelligence failures. I will keep banging this drum. I will keep kicking this dead horse. It is dead. I don't care. I will keep kicking. Um, I do think that it is really, really, really crucial that we distinguish between those two categories. So now focusing on the social media portion, I actually think that Again, I, I have not had a chance to closely read the the report itself, and so I, you may have thoughts here that are based on that that I can't really speak to. I am struck by how thoughtful and careful the writing by the staffers has been in the public eye about their conclusions. My takeaway from what they've written in their kind of summary is not Facebook should have taken everything down, but wow, this is a really difficult problem. 
here are the incentives that these companies were dealing with. How are we going to address this? It's actually not clear. You know, if if the conclusion, I was worried, certainly, I think if I'm remembering correctly, there were calls at the beginning of the committee's work, there was some suggestion that, you know, they were going to look at, you know, rescinding Section 230 or something like that. And I thought, oh, God, no, that's a terrible idea. They're, that's not what they're saying. They're saying this is a tough problem and we need to think seriously about how to address it. And I do think that on a kind of meta level, it is a positive thing to have a bunch of people who worked really hard for a long time on this kind of flagship committee come out and say, not everything is fine, or the tech companies are evil, let's get rid of them. But, you know, we've done all of this work as part of an organization that you respect that's high profile. Here's why you need to understand that this is really complicated. I actually do think that there's a kind of a salutary effect there if people understand it as such. I also think that, you know, it is important to understand the role of tech companies here, not to demonize them or vilify them, but precisely to understand what these incentives are, how these companies work, and how it contributed to an environment in which, you know, really awful violence took place that that could have been much worse. Not to say that this was the only factor which the report uh, tries to claim, in which if you read the Just Security Tech Policy Press piece, the uh, staffers are clearly a little bit salty about, but to understand it as part of a broad and super complicated landscape. And as the staffers point out, that was what part of the committee's purview explicitly set out in in the congressional authorization was. So I, I do, I'm not prepared to say this absolutely shouldn't have been cut. I do think it is a good thing that it is now seeing the light of day. And I think it is, I'm so far impressed by the fact that you know, it seems to be a pretty sober, fair-minded attempt to understand what the role of social media was without, you know, blowing it up into this whole huge thing. I will say, you know, if you compare this to that kind of bewildering appendix in the report that's like two pages and says essentially, hmm, Russia could have used this to do something bad, but we don't have any evidence that they did this, but they could have. Why did that end up in there and none of this did? Like, what the hell is that about? That That is, I mean, come on. I I so glad you mentioned. I was going to mention that exact same thing, and this is actually like on par with actually some of the better appendices. Like we had a really interesting appendix on financing and like the fundraising operations, which was really had very little to do with actual January sixth stuff, the stuff we care about happening that day, but was really interesting and contributed to popular conversation. And like in the end, the goal of the committee, whatever it may have said its mandate is, although I agree, it did expressly say this was in the scope of its mandate, its core mandate was to advance the public interest by trying to address the bad things that happened around January 6th and bringing light to them to help you know make information available to craft better solutions. This clearly had a role on January 6th. Now, maybe we don't like some of the outcomes. Maybe we don't have any, it doesn't point towards any clear direction towards a policy outcome. And it sounds like, Alan, you've got reservations about some. And I agree, like, I think it's easy to swing the pendulum too far the other way in certain cases. And I probably share those reservations more than than a lot of other folks. At the same time, I don't think that's a reason to not, or try me to withhold information about what actually happened. And if this had been part of you know, a determined chapter of the report, frankly, industry people would have been compelled to respond and provide contrary information and contrary narratives. It's part of a conversation. Instead, this got, you know, kept out of the conversation, at least until now. 
and we'll see it now if this sort of reporting is the sort of thing that Facebook, Twitter, et cetera, feels the need to respond to. They certainly didn't in the Washington Post piece where none of them really offered substantive comment. We'll see if something more comes out from there. So, you know, all told, I really think that it's a shame. This It would be a shame if this hadn't come out in some form. I'm glad it came out in this, albeit in perfect form. And again, it is just part of a conversation. We shouldn't take this as gospel. It is one perspective, but a pretty informed and detailed research one had more access to more information than a lot of other people have looked at this issue. Scott, I think that when the three of us all start a band, we should call it Better Appendices. That's That sounds like the thing that you know they, they put in. Oh, after we call they it Two Good Appendices because you don't have an appendix, exactly. Hey, <laughs> so we call it Two we Good go. Appendices. Nice. That's, that's call deep, that deep cut. Season one deep cut. of Rat Tech 2.0. Deep uh, cut. Real uh, Rat Sec heads now. Pull up. Pull up, everyone. Okay. Exactly. So, so b- before we finish, I do want to ask one last question, which is, you know, we, we're having this debate, not we, but like the discourse that's very, I think, quite fruitless about is social media biased against conservatives or is it biased against liberals or is it biased against this? Is it biased against that? And of course, everyone can sort of find their their nugget, right? You know, the quote unquote Twitter files that Elon uh, released recently is meant to support a particular narrative. And of course, you could use this to support the kind of counter narrative, which is that far from being biased against conservatives, you know, in this case, Twitter and other social media companies were bending over backwards to support uh, conservatives and Trump, right? I I mean, I'm curious, Quinta, does this additional, does this kind of latest data point, is it going to clear the air at all on this? Or or does it just show why making these kinds of broad statements, it's just kind of pointless? Because, you know, content moderation is big, you can always find some evidence for your, your, your priors. Yeah, I mean, I think saying like content moderation is very complicated and there's no clear answer is kind of the, the <laughs> I should like we should get that on T-shirts at this point. I do think that it is seems pretty clear from the reporting that in practice, these platforms are not biased against conservatives. If anything, they're pushing in the other direction to mitigate uh, enforcement efforts that could be perceived as biased against conservatives, which I would argue should make conservatives think a little more if policies against like inciting violence and terrorism are really limiting your posts. Maybe that should be cause for just a, a little bit of self-reflection. I will also say that I do think, you know, bringing up the Twitter files is kind of important here. The Twitter files have really focused so far around the Hunter Biden laptop issue, which you you mentioned briefly, that is way too complicated to get into here. But I will say, I have come to think that the sort of laser focus on the Hunter Biden laptop, Michigas, is kind of a way of complaining about the fact that these platforms tried to limit the insurrection without actually complaining that. Because if you say, oh, no, Twitter tried to stop an insurrection, that sounds kind of bad. But essentially what the argument that's being made there is how dare, you know, Twitter take action to try to stop this violence or to try to stop anything that that Trump was doing. And I think that makes it pretty clear what certain sides of this debate are are backing in what direction they uh, might want our politics to go. I'll, I'll put it that way. Well, from a drop of a chapter from the 1-6 committee report to a drop of a different sort, let us turn our eyes nice. to one of our two superpower rivals. <laughs> was it, Quinta? Was it? It was okay. I thought it was, <laughs> it was creative. Drop. It was unusual. We haven't done that before. <laughs> Thank you. I thought it was, I, you know, on the fly stuff here. I'll take it. Segways aren't easy. Um, in this case, we heard over the past week a pretty dramatic development in China. One that is so dramatic that it actually made the front page of the Wall Street Journal 
the Washington Post and the New York Times on Monday, I believe, this week or Tuesday of this past week, which is pretty impressive uh, for a piece of obscure statistical news out of uh, a foreign country. But China's uh, government agency responsible for essentially its census is reporting that China experienced a decline in population for the first time in 60 years since the Great Famine of the 1960s led to a massive amount of deaths in the early 1960s in China. This is something that was not entirely unexpected in that the kind of demographic trends in China have been leaning towards an aging population and a decline in population eventually. But it appears to have arrived several decades ahead of schedule in the form of this year. And this comes on the back of a couple of kind of notable developments in China. We've seen China completely U-turn on its zero COVID policy, essentially taking the most draconian set of policies in the country and kicking the doors open and saying, people do what you want. We're not, we're gonna, not going to treat COVID really like an issue anymore. And all of the health and economic problems and sometimes in some cases improvements in terms of the economy, at least, that come out of that. They have had the uh, lowest rate of growth they've had in their economy for several years, except for 2020, largely because of the COVID economic impact of the last year, while the rest of the global economy is recovering. They were still zero covid until the month of December, essentially. And we've seen it kind of line up with a kind of shift in tone on China, slightly more conciliatory tone, a departure from the wolf warrior, hyper aggressive um, tone that really has been the signature diplomatic posture of Xi Jinping's regime, at least for the last five years or so. Uh, Of course, this comes just after he renewed his leadership, as we talked about in the podcast before this fall in the 20th Party Congress. All these developments kind of line up in an interesting way and have a lot of people talking about China's decline, at least in the Western media. Alan, I'm curious, let me turn to you first. What do you make of all this? How should we be reading these stories and making sense of both, frankly, the facts underlying them and then these pretty dramatic editorial analyses that are coming out of them, both on opinion pages and even in, frankly, news pages, front pages that we're seeing on a lot of major US newspapers? Yeah, so I I just want all the Foucault fans in the audience to know that I was pushing for this segment to be called Biopolitics in Beijing. Uh, and Scott didn't let me because he insisted on what did he insist on? Sino, what is it? Sign of, of the Times. times which Sign is admittedly of the Times a, is better. Which is, no, it is better. It is an admittedly, it is an admittedly better pun. So that said, I, I think we should step back for a second and just talk about the the demographic history of China just for the like the last 60, 70 years. Because it's very interesting. Um, and I don't know, I think demography is it's something that I like to nerd out about. I think it is hugely underappreciated as a driver of you know world history and it's really interesting. So what happens in basically every country that as it industrializes is that you get what's called both the demographic transition and then the demographic dividend. And what the demographic transition is is that as countries get wealthier as a general matter, right? This is one kind of one of the most common features across world history, um, fertility rates drop. In particular, because women get more educated, they get more independent, they have more economic opportunities, uh, and they want to control reproduction, right? In addition, child mortality drops. And so you don't need to have, let's say, 10 children to make sure that three or four of them survive into adulthood. And in addition, people move off agriculture. So again, you just you don't need quite as many people, right, per, per family. So what happens is that the population sort of initially explodes, child mortality drops, right? And you get what's called the demographic dividend, where you have a ton of uh, prime age workers. You don't have a lot of older people that they have to that they have to support, and you don't also have a ton of younger people because they're not having as many children. And so, for those 
several decades of that generation. Um, if you imagine kind of a distribution of population, you have like a big bulge in the middle and kind of a skinny head and a skinny bottom. That's great for economic growth because then the country can sort of just plow everything into its productive generation and they don't take a lot. And that is basically what China has been operating under for you know the last 30 years or so or 40 years or so. And that's a big reason for China's kind of incredible growth, right? And China is, if you look, again, world historically, the greatest industrialized success story in human history, right? No other society has brought as many people out of poverty as China has in the last, you know, 30, 40 years. You know, the kind of the, the, the hockey stick of economic, global economic development is in large part recently because of, because of China. And that's great. The, the problem is, you know, when that ends, you have a really big problem because suddenly you have a bunch of people who are now getting much older. They don't have a lot of children. So therefore, there's not a lot of that tax base to support them. Those children who then are themselves going to have to spend a lot of their resources supporting their parents feel like they don't have enough money to support their own children. So they have fewer children. And you kind of get this vicious cycle. Uh, and so China is now sort of substantially below, below replacement, right? Now, in China's case, this was also, of course, exacerbated by the infamous one-child policy, um, which was enforced for, for many decades. But even without the one-child policy, you would have still had this demographic transition. And we know that because you have that in other East Asian countries, right? You have that in Japan, you have that in South Korea. Um, and really, you're going to have that no matter, you're going to have that everywhere, uh, ultimately. What the one-child policy did was, in particular, it created a huge gender imbalance uh, because for you know, cultural norms, boys were much preferred. And so there was a lot of sex-selective abortion to the point where there's something like, you know, in some like 20 million, ex or I think it's like 10 to 15% more men in younger generations or kind of middle-aged generations now than there should be. Um, relative to women, right? And that causes its own huge social dislocation problems that we can we can talk about. So China's in in like a really, really rough shape. And, you know, I think that probably the the COVID, the kind of draconian COVID measures probably haven't helped things at all because, you know, for the last several years, you've had a kind of disruption that is honestly substantially worse than in, in many ways you've had even in you know, countries like the United States where we did not handle COVID very well, which again, further disincentivizes people from having children just given sort of the, 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 the trauma that they've lived under. So I, I think the real question going forward is, you know, what does this mean for, for Chinese policy? On the one hand, as the population gets older, um, you could imagine China turning more inward. On the other hand, and this is the real unknown, a combination of an authoritarian government that needs to build legitimacy for itself, plus this excess of unmarried men who need to do something might actually cause China to become more aggressive in the short term. And so you have these two opposing forces, and it's sort of not clear how it's going to play out in the next you know, 10, 15 years. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com.
So this is fascinating, and I I know absolutely nothing about it, and now I have a lot of really stupid questions. Um, the the first is, do we know why this is happening first in East Asia as opposed to say other industrialized or industrializing nations? Like, is it because there's more immigration to the United States? What what is it? Yeah. So yeah. So th- so this is tricky. So where you're seeing the lowest replacement levels in terms of female fertility is in Western Europe and East Asia, right? East Asia is like the worst. I think South Korea might have the lowest, but Western Europe's quite low uh, as well. The United States is below replacement, but it's quite a bit higher. Uh, Part of that is just kind of cultural reasons. Part of that is because we, we have a lot of immigrants and immigrants who tend to come from less developed countries bring with them their kind of procreative cultural norms, which tend to be higher replacement rates, right? But you are going to see that sort of everywhere. You know, if you look, at, you know, if even if you look at uh, graphs of countries that are still growing quite quickly, India, for example, which I think like like literally this month is estimated to have actually um, become the largest country in the world, beating China. Right? It's going to grow um, for another you know, several more decades. But even there, the population projections t- you know, top out at like eighty or like in like twenty eighty or something like that. Again, as as the, the the fertility rate falls behind that, you have Africa. Uh, and this really is going to be Africa-centric demographically, right? I mean, Nigeria, for example, is just going to be exploding in growth through to the twenty-second uh, century. But even then, at some point, it's going to it's going to catch up, right? Um, what can buffet countries, all of whom are experiencing these low replacement rates, is immigration, right? This is why the United States, which continues to be just like you know, we, you know, we got really blessed with geography and we got really blessed with demographics because even though our replacement rate is low, we're such a magnet for immigration that our population is going to steadily, slowly increase, which is kind of the kind of perfect if you think about it in terms of uh, rates, frankly, through the rest of this century. And that's because we have such high in-migration. China does not have such high in-migration, right? There's obviously migrant workers, but China is, and here it's tricky. I mean, on the one hand, China is a very diverse country. I mean, it's almost a continent and Han Chinese, while technically one ethnicity is, of course, a a large agglomeration uh, of of people. But it is fundamentally, right, in the way we think about it, an ethnically quite homogenous state, right? Again, bracketing, for example, like Xinjiang, right, which obviously is its own problem. Um, That plus the fact that Chinese is a difficult language, and I say that as someone who spent many years in college trying fruitlessly to learn it, it's a beautiful language, it's an amazing language, but it is not an easy language, right? Um, Combined with the fact that unlike English, which is also not an easy language, it's not taught, frankly, as like a second language around the world. It's just not easy to just like migrate and become Chinese in the way that it is, you know, to oversimplify, like a relatively straightforward process to immigrate and over a few generations become American, right? As has happened through American history. Um, so that that's kind of a long answer to your to your kind of in-migration and replacement question. Uh, but really, I think, again, it just goes to show how lucky the United States is. Okay, so my, my next dumb question is, I'm trying to figure out how to ask this in a way that is neither like Foucauldian nor like those obsessive degrowthers who want ultimately human extinction. But Turn to the dark side, give in to your feelings. <laughs> I Well, no, so changing demographics along the line that you've described are a problem for many reasons. It creates economic difficulties. It creates difficulties for the, the generation that doesn't have children to look after them and, and so forth. At the same time, I guess my question is, 
are our economic systems and like the nature of human existence such now under the existing circumstances? Alan is like grinning like a goon. Listeners should know. You're so excited for the question I'm about to ask you. Is so such that the population of humans will necessarily need to keep increasing forever? And also, like, does the rate of increase also need to keep increasing? Are we locked into just expanding forever? Because I, again, I don't want to be like the, like Paul Ehrlich and like, oh no, we're going to totally colonize the surface of the earth and destroy everything. But it does seem like this idea of necessary, constant expansion, perhaps at an exponential rate, runs into some very obvious difficulties if you start thinking about sustainability and the environment without and I, I am asking this question without endorsing any of the nutty ideas about horrible things like forced sterilization and and so forth i don't know i i'm confused please explain this to me <laughs> i i was just so excited because because i i too want to heap uh obloquy on paul ehrlich what sorry just to clarify one question here i mean we're not talking about the continued growth in any of these countries right like we're talking about a population bubble and a creative pre- like economic pressure that's going to create situations of economic constraint because you have like less productive population, higher dependent population. But ultimately, the population of all these states is going to decline unless they hit the replacement rate, either through immigration or reproduction. So I think this is kind of a, a contrary push to the idea that we're going to see exponential growth, which I don't think is an idea that has been taken as seriously in recent decades, in part because we've seen this strong trend in most industrialized economies away from the replacement rate. So actually it is an ultimately, you know, several decades after that blip begins to die out, declining population, right? Yeah. I mean, so so the, I, I think that the UN projections have the population continuing to increase throughout the 21st century, peaking around the turn of the turn of the century, like around 10 and a half billion people, at which point population growth will essentially stop, right? And of course, net migration within the world is zero. So- And this is all assuming that all the rest of the world follows kind of the development path that we've seen states f- follow over the 20th century. So it's highly speculative, but kind of does the best with the information we have, I think it's fair to say, right? Y- yeah. I, I mean, I think what's the most speculative part is if every if every country actually follows the highly developed demographic path, then we're headed to extinction. Because of course, if you have a below replacement rate, then at some point you don't have any people. Right. That's, that's kind of my point. Yeah. So I, I think that the, the general idea is, is that at some point, and I, I think the problem is projecting these cultural trends like beyond 2100 20, is is kind of pointless. So I, I guess the assumption is that right, you know, at some point like Nigeria's replacement or or, or not, Nigeria's birth rate will fall dramatically, but like the U.S.'s birth rate will have to come up, right? Um, and everyone will end up at the same ultimate, you know, 2.1 children per per woman, right? Or alternatively, you could sort of have in perpetuity because presumably will always be some level of economic inequality among countries, right? The, the richer countries might have a below replacement rate. You'll always have kind of a, a, a kind of a net immigration, but it's just going to be much less pronounced than what you have now, right? Where um, you know, the birth rates in, in Africa in particular just are, are quite are quite high and, and will continue to be for the next uh, several decades. I mean, the question of whether or not this is all a good thing or a bad thing, which I think is part of the, your question, Quinta, and, and you know where we get the degrowthers and Paul Ehrlich and stuff like that. I mean, it just reminds me of a wonderful book that I recommend everyone read because it's super interesting. It's called The Wizard and the Prophet by uh, the historian Charles Mann. It's from Alan's uh, pro-wizardry bias comes into play once again. I know we're back oh, to God, the wizards I am again. Total wizard. I'm yeah, and it divides the the world of like thinkers on the 
this into the wizards who think that technology will save us and to the prophets who think that like we are ultimately screwed um, unless we go back to it's unclear what we're supposed to go back to, um, but basically some version of of degrowth. And I am like one trillion percent. I am a wizard to my very core uh, and a vampire, apparently, as well, I guess, for those who have been following along the last couple episodes. But I don't know. I'm I don't know. I'm I'm pretty obviously a wizard. On that note, let me take this in, back in to conclusion, China. Alan's a wizard. <laughs> well, on that on that conclusion, I, I want to tell. I think all this trend stuff is very interesting. Uh, I think for folks who have been kind of following, particularly like comparative politics and economics, it's like these demographic trends have been such a dominant conversation in Europe and East Asia, really for the last thirty years. It's a it's a challenge that China knew was coming down the pike. The fact that it arrived this much quicker is really interesting. I want to see. Uh, a better analysis about like what role COVID played in all that potentially, uh, among other factors. But it seems like this is not solely attributable to that. This is a, a lot of factors kind of kicked in faster than expected. And so it's taken a surprise. But I hesitate. I, I kind of my instinct is to counsel against reading too much into this in terms of near or even near to medium term policy implications. You know, I think it's fair to say the public receipt of this information, the fact that the Xi Jinping regime knew this information was going to be released publicly. I'm not sure why they felt they had to release it publicly, but they did. Uh, And so they knew that was coming compared, you know, aligned with bad economic numbers of late of the zero COVID controversy, public protests around it. um, Now the consequences of reversing it, you know, all these things may have the government there on a little bit of a weakened posture, you know, concerned, at least in the short to medium term about saying, well, look, maybe we need to make some international solutions, some of our problems a little bit more available. So we will stop, you know, an ongoing trade dispute with Australia over coal to open up some more trade and economic opportunities. Maybe we will, you know, relax some of our very aggressive posture we've taken the last few years towards neighbors in East Asia so that we can have more immigration uh, or send some of our surplus population of young men elsewhere to try and uh, marry and bring people back to China. Things along those lines, right? There's a lot of economic reasons why, you know, in in responding to this perceived trend, maybe sneaking up on you a few decades early, you would want to have friendlier relations. There is this kind of international relations theory idea about as well about states particularly super powerful states, relatively powerful states, becoming more aggressive as they're in hit a state of decline. They see they're in decline. They see that as a moment where their relative power still exceeds that of peers in their neighborhood. And they use it as an opportunity to like lock in relative advantage by going on the offensive, essentially. And you could see this playing into the Chinese narrative as well, along with the idea that you have a bunch of bored, you know, undersexed, underappreciated young men uh, desperate to do something in the world and why not just kill something as a result of it. I, I, I think find both of those maybe to be a little too, a little too kind of uh, mono, maybe the amount of causal is not quite right, but a little too strong kind of like causation and correlation to read out of trends like this. You know, there's probably some, maybe some element of truth that as well. But the situation in China is much more complicated than just being like, you know, a, a great power on the decline. It is, it's in fact still engaged in a struggle with the United States, has a lot of counter pressure in the region. So long story short, I mean, I think these trends are very interesting. They're very important data points. But I was kind of surprised by the amount of editorializing and analysis that flew from this about a lot of people kind of beginning to preach the demise of modern China or the beginning of a dissent. And I'm not sure that's what this is in the same way that because Japan hit these problems starting in the 1980s or 1990s, Japan is still a major global power, major global economy, has lots of challenges, and they've had to work with the world to address it, and it's limited to some of what it can do. I suspect that's the reality China is moving towards, even though it's going to look somewhat different. Yeah, so I, I, I mean, I think I was, I was with you until the very end, because 
and again, I mean, I'm, I'm not sure how to parse it exactly, but I don't think Japan is a well, okay, fine. It's a global power, right? It's a big, it's a big economy, right? There's no question that it's within the top ten countries. But relative to the expectations of what it would be like in the 1980s, it is, and again, relative to those expectations, right? It has, may have had the most precipitous fall in power and prestige, other than maybe Russia, right, from the fall of the Soviet Union. And so, I actually think that if what we're going to see with China is in any way mirroring what we saw with Japan. That is like an avulsive change in glo- you know, in world politics that could, I mean, like literally bring us back to the sort of unipolar American dominated world of the ni- of the 90s and the early 2000s. Now, again, I don't know if we're going to see that, but I, I don't think that focus from media on this is misplaced. Now, what I do think you're absolutely right is that like, it's not like Xi Jinping woke up and got a report from his whatever minister for population about this and went, well, I guess we're not going to invade Taiwan anymore, um, right? Like that's not how this works. And you're absolutely right that like in the short or medium term, um, this might not change that many things. But I, I do think it is really important to, to keep in mind. And, and I do think it also is important in part because I think it can give more confidence to sort of liberal democracies that the authoritarian threat from China, this is just another data point like along with the COVID mismanagement, this is just another data point that it is not, you know, again, to, to go back to our sort of Fukuyama end of history, right? Like it is not an alternative ending of human history, right? It is just this like weird blip. And that if you can just hold out for several decades, right, you know, and try not to end civilization uh, in a thermonuclear war over Taiwan, like China will just, it will just end up kind of shrinking inwardly, both literally and in terms of in terms of, of great power. And I think that is just, you know, whether you think that's good or bad or whatever, I think that's I think it's quite notable. Well, from a ceiling on the population of China to the ceiling on the US debt. How is that? Outstanding. I thought that Out- was good. Standing. Lovely. Thank you. Thank you. Two points to two points to Hufflepuff. <laughs> Hufflepuff. Oh yeah, um, that's a compliment. Obviously, Hufflepuff is the best. Oh, house. Hufflepuffs They're are the definitely nice ones. the best. Exactly. They're the nice ones. Yeah. Um, okay, so onto onto the actual topic. Listeners may have seen that uh, now that we have a Republican-controlled House of Representatives, we are quickly approaching a crisis over the debt ceiling, which is the the limit on how much debt the U.S. can incur. Uh, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen announced last week that the limit will be technically breached on January 19th. So, uh, dear listener, that is the day you are listening to this podcast. We're in technical breach. <laughs> After which the, the Treasury is going to take what I believe are, are in fact, technically called extraordinary measures. Um, but those, uh, which I think, as as far as I understand, are basically just moving money around in increasingly creative ways, um, those are going to probably run out in June, at which point uh, we will have truly uh, breached the debt ceiling. So we had these fights under the Obama administration in 2011 and 2013. Uh, we are now ready for them again now that Republicans have rediscovered caring about the debt under a Democratic president after not mysteriously caring about it under the Trump administration. And I think the question is really, you know, how much damage we're expecting is going to be done to not just the U.S., but the world economy before all this is over? A giant, giant question mark. So my question to you both is, how is this going to end? Do we think that Biden is going to hashtag mint the coin? Obviously, I'm referring to the trillion dollar platinum coin. Is it, in fact, unconstitutional uh, for Republicans to try to refuse to raise the debt ceiling? What on earth is going on? 
Sure. You know, I'll start. I think it very clearly we're headed towards the biggest confrontation we've seen over the debt ceiling to date by design, right? Our colleague Molly Reynolds, who's been on the podcast a lot lately, uh, had a very useful article uh, in our uh, not on Lawfare, unfortunately, this time, but in the Brookings Institution website, where she kind of made the case that this is the deal that the Freedom Caucus worked out with Kevin McCarthy to make him speaker is that they basically set up institutional structure to be able to drive towards brinksmanship. We don't know what the exact terms of that are. And in particular, we don't know how, to the extent to which they're really binding on Kevin McCarthy. Like, I think there's limits to which he can. L- you know, risk his credibility to make future deals if he wants to be speaker again in two years by going back on the terms of deals. But maybe there's some wiggle room, maybe there's some ambiguous language with whatever this kind of secret appendix that's supposedly floating around that spells out the terms of this deal. And then maybe Kevin McCarthy can just defect because as far as I'm aware, it's not actually baked into the rule set that was adopted. Um, Instead, it is like one of these side deals about how McCarthy is going to wield his power. But regardless, very expressly, very clearly, that was a purpose of what the Freedom Caucus was trying to accomplish in pushing McCarthy as far as it, it did. And assuming it did so successfully that it knows how to go about triggering this McCarthy acts in good faith, they are trying to bind the Republican caucus to the mass to force a confrontation with the Biden administration over the debt ceiling. So what does that mean? There, there's kind of like three ways this can go, I think. You know, one way is that the uh, Biden administration doesn't cave. There's no way they can totally cave. Like it's just straight up not even plausible or possible politically or policy wise to cave to all the initial demands that are, seem likely to flow about privatizing Social Security, all these other things. But they can work really hard to work a deal, push it aggressively um, and see where they can get with House Republicans and work out some sort of deal. And it's probably going to look something a lot like sequestration um, that we saw during the Obama administration, right? That involved pretty, pretty severe cuts to a variety of programs, including national defense, put in there as kind of a penalty for both sides if they fail to reach a deal about how to resolve, uh, how to better reallocate funds. They never reached a better deal and said DOD ended up taking big hits for several years. That proved unpopular and everybody regrets them, but that was kind of the deal that was worked out. Nonetheless, it did result in um, you know spending cuts. The, the alternative option is that we just default and we see what happens. It is a big unknown. I think it's an unknown most people think is really damaging. We have seen in the past uh, at least one credit rating agency drop the value of U.S. credit when we came close to a default in, I think it was 2014, if I remember correctly. I can't remember the year off the top of my head. We also saw the market do some really weird things around treasury bonds that panicked people and pushed people towards some sort of reconciliation and compromise. Maybe we get there, maybe that triggers some sort of deal along the lines of column A, but if we don't, we default and we deal with the consequences and see what that actually is. Um, there's a chance they may not be as severe as everybody says they might be. That's certainly a possibility. There's also a chance they may be completely disastrous. And we don't really know because not something the United States has done before. And the whole global economic system is built on the credibility, the kind of you know solid gold standard of treasury debt. U.S. Treasury debt as being the most safe thing you can invest in. So if you miss this payment, it could have ramifications around the world. The third scenario, which I think is worth talking about, is the Biden administration finds a tricky way around this solution. Um, we've seen sort of two floated. There may be so, there are other sort of half measures they can take. The two big ones are the kind of infamous trillion dollar platinum coin idea, which capitalizes on a poorly worded statue about the printing of coinage to basically produce not necessarily one coin, but several coins of any sort of value the Biden administration wants, although they do appear to have to be made out of platinum under this very poorly worded statute, um, which essentially the Federal Reserve uh, would then buy 
and then the treasury would be able to have funds available to pay off its debt and they wouldn't have to go to raise the debt ceiling and raise additional debt, right? There's a different option to do it. Another option is the 14th Amendment. There's a language that some people argue uh, includes a, a provision that says the debt of the United States should not be questioned, that some people argue should be constitutional grounds for Biden being able to ignore the question of the debt ceiling. Now, that, given that this, these money, the spending has already been authorized by Congress, it's just the debt ceiling. I find the latter of those much more questionable legally than the former. And policy-wise, the former raises some questions, uh, although uh, you know I may not be best positioned to raise it. But that's kind of how I see the scenario playing out. And I think it's more than likely than any, any prior scenario, we actually end up in category three, and maybe some mixture of category two and category three. We hit an actual crisis or get very close to one, and the Biden administration says, finally, you forced our hand, Congress. You can't get your act together. Now we have to take one of these extreme measures, and that's what they end up doing. Um, but I'm curious about your all's thoughts on this. Well, I, I think that's a great taxonomy. I, I would add a fourth category, which is that they Biden ignores the debt ceiling, but not in a tricky way. So the fourth category is Biden says, I am going to commit an illegal act. I will pay the debts of the United States beyond the debt ceiling in violation of Congress, right? Now, uh, he could say, I'm just doing it because it needs to be done. He could say, I am doing it and I have a constitutional argument, maybe grounded in the 14th Amendment. There are reasons to do it both ways. But, you know, there is in American, well, pre-constitutional political theory, um, in American constitutional theory, the idea of the prerogative power, right? Which is this idea that in certain extreme circumstances, the president should be able to violate the law and then, right, admit that he violated it. So this is actually a key point. He has to admit that he's violated it and then be willing to be held in judgment by the appropriate body, right? So famously, this occurred in uh, the Civil War where Lincoln took some um, sort of pretty obviously illegal actions relative to secession uh, at the very beginning and then went to Congress and said, hey, Congress, I did this illegal thing, but I felt like I needed to do it. Please retroactively validate what I did. And, and they did. Now, in this case, it'd be more complicated because the whole reason Biden would have to do this is because Congress isn't playing ball with him. So, you know, perhaps he'd have to just say, then you should impeach me, right? He should invite impeachment and then let the Senate decide, right? And then ultimately let the electorate decide in 2024. I mean, th this all, and I actually don't mean this kind of metaphorically, like this literally may be the best thing to do for the rule of law in, in a number of ways. Right? First, what the Republicans are doing, it, it is beyond irresponsible, right? Like this is just ridiculous, right? Kevin McCarthy's ego and obsession with the stupid title of Speaker of the House has caused him to give away the farm to just the worst sorts of kind of like burn the house down anarchists. And he is playing with the global financial process, right? And he's doing it in a way that's also just very stupid. The debt ceiling is dumb, right? This is the other thing that needs to be kept in, in mind. This serves no purpose because of course, the expenditures have already been authorized and everyone knew that that was going to cause debt, right? And so I think trying to trickily get one way around it is not great because it kind of lets them off the hook. On the other hand, it would arguably be illegal, or if not illegal, requiring some very novel constitutional interpretation. And in those situations, I don't know. I, I do think that there is something to be said for the president being just very honest with the political process about what he's doing, and for the political process to either validate or not validate what he did. I mean, this is a way that the Constitution um, has evolved throughout American history. And look, I, you know, there are very, 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 very few examples where I would be convinced by this argument, but I do think the debt ceiling might be one of these extreme, extreme examples. 
Yeah, I mean, I'll just say that I will also underline how unbelievably dumb this whole thing is. It's so dumb. And I really do think that the Republicans, not that the public by and large ever approves of these kinds of, of gambits. It's never actually worked out for the Republican Party, which is one of the reasons why I think that it makes more sense to understand this kind of play acting as an effort to intentionally tank the economy to hurt the re-election chances for a Democratic president. But I think that the Republicans are are able to get some mileage out of the fact that if you say the term debt ceiling to the average person, they have no idea what that means. And there is a effort on the Republican side to, I think, intentionally blur the difference between the debt ceiling and the budget so that there is this sense that they can say, oh, well, you know, we need to live within our means, et cetera, et cetera, rather than acknowledging that this is simply a question of whether to pay the bills that, as you said, we we already incurred. And I think if you use the kind of analogy to personal finance that Republicans so love to do, the question of should you just not pay your credit card bill? Um, is not particularly appealing to to people who are, you know, supposedly fiscally minded and and so forth. Yeah, I'll say, you know, Alan, I I I take you know the frustration with the situation. I think it's a phenomenally dangerous proposal and reckless, and I really think it's it's a a, a problem. You know, we've just come out of a presidency where we really saw a president rely upon claims of emergency or claims of exceptional authority, particularly regarding the border wall cases, right, to do something that Congress didn't authorize that clearly requires the Congress's appropriations power. And I this would look a way set a precedent making that much easier for future presidents in a really problematic way. Yeah, Congress is acting really irresponsibly here. And there are maybe good reasons for the Biden administration to move away from it. But just to openly rebuke the law without providing a pretext, I think, is, is dangerous, not least institutionally here. Like we know from the wall cases, right? Like we saw in the D.C. Circuit, one chamber actually be found to have standing to challenge those legal actions that were pre. It was the Trump administration was pursuing kind of contrary to the appropriations power. So frankly, I think if the Biden administration did that, the House, which is Republicans dominate and Republicans control the litigation ability could sue, probably would get standing again. That case was actually wiped out by the DC circuit, but the same judges are still on the court. Get standing and enjoin federal officials from, you know, issuing the debt or paying the debt or making paying the payments. And then it comes down to, well, are those federal officials going to risk, you know, being held in contempt by court? Is that the position we want to put people in by the president acting illegally? I, I don't I don't think it is. Um and, and I'm not sure that's the way to go around it. There are legal arguments available, uh, and those are really things I think really the reason why we're going to see people turn to them because that other option is so unpalatable and frankly really puts federal civil servants in a really, really dangerous, uncomfortable position of acting unlawfully. Note there's also potential criminal penalties that even come into play in some of these cases about making payments um, like this with unappropriated funds, right? Uh, Which I think this would qualify as I'd have to think about a little bit more to know for sure. Of those options, you have the 14th Amendment and you have the coin one, right? One's constitutional. The 14th Amendment basically says, well, we could read the 14th Amendment to say debt ceilings aren't permitted. If you appropriate funds or you authorize spending, then you actually have to like authorize the debt that comes with paying us. Otherwise, join the 14th Amendment. I think the plain text supports that reading, but it's really hard to square with how we think of the appropriations power because Congress puts all sorts of conditions on appropriations powers all the time and the court routinely treats them as binding. That's actually like the reason why omnibus appropriations bills are such a big Christmas tree at the end of every Congress that people hang provisions on. So that's why I think the more log- logical scenario, as far as it was crazy as it seems, is this crazy coin idea. Because it's a statutory problem, right? But that means the court could say, hey, 
you're right, executive branch, you can get out of this conundrum this one time, but then Congress can come back and fix it if it doesn't like what's happening here. It doesn't actually change the allocation of constitutional power, which is what I really think the courts would be really worried about here. And so, you know, in my mind, that's the option that both is the most appealing as crazy and wacky as it sounds. And there are a lot of economic policy reasons I think it may be concerning, but that probably are less damaging than a debt ceiling default. But as a legal matter, that to me strikes me as by far the safest one, a more preferable one than kind of kicking the doors down to unlawful behavior because of the president's assessment of what, you know, is necessary for the country. That makes me really, really nervous. Um, and I actually don't, there is a tradition of doing that. There, you know, we have the, what, Louisiana Purchase, we have Lincoln, the Civil War, there's a handful of cases presidents have done it, but never quite in this sort of environment in a situation where they would actually be acting directly contrary to what Congress has directed them to do, which is what would be happening here. And I think that that really raises a lot of questions about its impact on our fundamental separation of powers and, and kind of democratic system. I'm, I'm with you. I'm with you. And this is why if this issue is anything other than the collapse of the global financial system and an economic uh, catastrophe that could, you know, cause far worse political consequences than this single act of admitted presidential unlawfulness, I'd be totally with you. It's just, I don't know, this, this, this seems, this seems much scarier than frankly anything else. And, and I think the argument that, well, this will set a precedent, I think ignores the fact that whether it sets a precedent or not depends on whether or not the public accepts that it sets a precedent. And so the question is, will the public understand that this is not simply the president overriding Congress because he disagrees with their policy priorities, but that this is one of these you know, potential calamities that comes up once every 50 years in American history and is not the same as the border wall or whatever the next democratic policy priority will be. And I don't think we know the answer to that, uh, to that question, unfortunately. Well, we'll have to leave the conversation there for now. Uh, I'm sure we'll have opportunities to revisit the story as it is likely going to be one of the big storylines in national news over the months to come. But until then, we need to turn back to our traditional way of closing out the show, Object Lesson, where we give you a little bit of something to ponder over before we are back in your podcatcher next week. Alan, why don't you get us started? What is your object lesson this week? So as the parent of a toddler... I sometimes need him to watch some television. You know, I try not to do a lot of that, but just sometimes I just need my kid to watch television, especially on weekends where we're all sick. And unfortunately, that has been Coco Melon. And I hate Coco Melon. I hate it so very, very much. But I discovered through the Parents of Toddler Grapevine a show that is actually quite wonderful. And it's called Bluey. It's an Australian cartoon about a bunch of dogs. And it is just fabulous. It is fabulous in every way. It is like the perfect show that appeals to children, but also has like just enough there for the adults who are watching. And so as a service to other parents of toddlers who just sometimes for 10 minutes need to put their toddler in front of a television so that they can, you know, brush their teeth. I highly recommend Bluey. I think it's on Disney Plus. So... I don't know. Scott, what's, what's, your, what's your version of this? We, my son has, is very into Daniel Tiger, has been for a long time. Daniel Tiger, okay. wonderful show. Can't recommend it enough. Very educational, thoughtful, sweet, nice little songs, cute. But he has more recently gotten seduced to the dark side by Paw Patrol. Which is a horrible, shallow, soulless <laughs> propaganda television show. It is basically it is like it is definitely propaganda. It's terrible. It is like essentially the stupidest action movie you could ever ask for 
made for two-year-olds because basically it's just like everyone in this town is a complete idiot except for this kid and his five dogs they get into some scenario you got to rescue their cat or something every damn week and there's no message to it there's no moral there's nothing the kid can apply to their life and my son is hooked on it because just like an adrenaline feed every time we turn it on and i regret ever showing it to him so bluey is going my list i find bluey very charming i I watch a lot of my son uh we were in the hospital out with him after he was born for a few months uh and we watch a lot of bluey because they play it at the children's hospital like nonstop. and the kind of like australian or new zealand i can't i think australian accent it's australian oh my god well that's it that's it our entire antipodian audience is now unsubscribed because you can't tell Aussies from Kiwis. Come on, man. It's hard. It's hard. I haven't heard it in a while. I think if I heard it fresh, I would I would know. Quinta, what do you have for us this week? So as listeners probably noticed, I was away last week. I was at the Grand Canyon. It was great. It was big. It was deep. It did not have that much internet or cell service, which I enjoyed. Did um, you ride the donkeys like I told you to? I did not ride the donkeys. I walked <sighs> down by myself, but I did see the donkeys and they were very sweet. I, oh, they're mules, I should say, technically. Sorry, mules. Okay, d- yeah. Important distinction. Um, but if you peruse the gift shops of the Grand Canyon, you will see one book over and over and over again. In fact, sometimes you will see that uh, so many people have thumbed through this book and the various bookstores that the stores actually put out uh, copies for people to thumb through and shrink wrap the other copies so that they don't all get dog-eared. And this book, which I will now recommend to you, is called Over the Edge, colon, Death in the Grand Canyon. The font is papyrus. And <laughs> I it was is- going to ask. <laughs> oh, yes. There's a little rainbow on it. I, that seems a bit odd, frankly, given the, the subject matter. But uh, you you may have known that about 12 people die in the Grand Canyon each year. That is somewhat disturbing. And this is a book that writes about all of them, all of the various disasters, accidental deaths. Um, it also includes murders, which I personally find somewhat weird. Although a murder in the Grand Canyon is a that that would be a pretty good plot for some kind of you know prestige detective show. I think there's a good movie about this, like a oh, rafting, well, there you go. right? Like a whitewater murder well, movie so in the 90s. Well, so that is how some people do die, yes. So I did not buy this book. I did flip through it. It was hugely entertaining and somewhat alarming. Um, I chose to flip through it only after I had actually gone down into the canyon itself, so I was not terrified while hiking. Uh, I, I highly recommend this if you are feeling a bit uh, macabre yourself and would like to read about people who met their untimely end at this beautiful national park. I feel like this is the book equivalent of watching the movie alive on an airplane, right? Where it's just like <laughs> like a vicious way to understand how you yourself might die. It blows me away that airplanes ever show airplane disaster movies. Like, I, yeah. I, 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 why is that part of your library, man? Well, I was flying there. I was on the plane. There was a little bit of turbulence. The person next to me was watching the sequel to Top Gun, and the turbulence hit <laughs> right as they were at the point where, spoiler alert, a plane crashes. And I will oh say that was God. not reassuring. <laughs> oh, I love it. I always point out, having clicked on the link that you gave us to this book, it is 591 pages long. It is, it is not like a light read. Oh, no. This is some serious scholarship. Wow. All right. Well, I'm excited about this. The Grand Canyon is pretty spectacular. I've never gotten to hike it. I've only, I rode a helicopter there from Vegas once and then flew back just to do a day trip. But one day I would love to go back. That sounds amazing. Well, for my object lesson, I am dipping back into my cookbooks because I had some family in town this weekend celebrating my son's birthday. We had a couple meals out and then we were like, we need something light 
just to cook that's easy, that's casual. I went digging through my collection of luxury beans for my Elite Bean Society subscription that I have accumulated. And I found a bag of green lentils and had a flashback to the soup that I used to cook all the time a couple of years ago. Then when my wife was pregnant, she had like a very averse reaction to garlic and lemon. Uh, and this recipe involves gremolata. So I couldn't, I couldn't mm. make it for years and it kind of fell out of my rotation. I went back and made it and it's so spectacular. One of the best easy recipes I've ever made and is Kenji Lopez Alt's lentil soup. And it basically involves just lentils, carrots, onions, celery, uh, some uh, leeks. And then you make a gremolata out of like parsley, lemon zest, and a lot of garlic. And you kind of mix that into the soup, throw it around. It's phenomenal. It's so easy. And it's just like one of the best soups ever. You can eat it warm. You can eat it cold. It satisfied the whole family. It's just delicious. So I'm strongly endorsing this recipe. Make it, put in your rotation. It comes together super fast. It's delicious. Um, and you will thank me for it later. And probably thank Kenji too, because he came up with it. Well, folks, that brings us to the end of this week's episode. Rational Security is a production of Lawfare. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at RETL Security and be sure to leave a rating or review wherever you might be listening. While you're at it, visit lawfareblog.com for our show page with links to past episodes for our written work and the written work of other Lawfare contributors and for information on Lawfare's other phenomenal podcast series. And be sure to sign up to become a material supporter of Lawfare on Patreon for an ad-free version of this podcast and other special benefits. Our audio engineer and producer this week was Noam Osband of Goat Rodeo, and our music, as always, was performed by Sophia Yan. We are once again edited by the wonderful Jen Patcha Howell. On behalf of my co-host, Alan Quinta, I am Scott R. Anderson. We will talk to you next week. Until then, goodbye. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.